Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am fresh off the treadmill. It's like 6.30 in the morning here, but I feel great. I feel just great. I'm looking forward to the show. Man, I am too. Let's talk about what was happening on February 11th, 1996. Not in St. Louis, but in St. Petersburg, Florida. Of course, it's Super Brawl 6. We did a super brawl poll and you guys wanted to hear about 1996 and it's easy to see why we're coming on the heels of Starcade 95, which we recently did a show on that had a little Japanese flair to it, but coming into 1996, of course, WCW debuted nitro and the Monday night war is now in full effect. There's been 15 weeks head to head between September 11th and December 18th. And during that period, raw averaged a 2.433 and nitro averaged a 2.387. Although from a rating standpoint, nitro actually won seven of those weeks and raw won six, two of those were tied. You've got to feel pretty encouraged with this new venture called nitro. You know, absolutely. And I, as I went back and, and reviewed super brawl six, you know, a lot of the matches I had long since forgotten about, and, and most of them, many of them were kind of inconsequential to begin with. It's not that they should have stood out and, and stood the test of time in terms of the types of things that wrestling fans talk about. But the overall, uh, I hate to use the word vibe, it's overused, but the overall feeling, the energy, the outlook for WCW is so positive right now. And, and I can see it. You know, from my perspective, looking back at this now, I can see it in everybody. I mean, the the difference in the energy and the confidence, I think, probably more than anything, it's really the confidence is how things really were, were beginning to manifest because of Nitro. You, just the energy, the confidence, and the talent was so much different here in 96 than it was the year previous, prior to Nitro. Nitro, it changed so many things, and not just the obvious things you know, that we've all talked about ad nauseum, but it, it changed the way everybody in WCW looked at themselves with respect to the business, with respect to the competition. And it's amazing to see what happens when, you know, you get a group of people who are all of a sudden, who are void of confidence, who are void of a real competitive kind of instinct because there was no reason to believe you could compete when all of a sudden, you know, you instill a, with in people the idea that you know what we can actually do this we can actually be you know as successful as wwe in terms of the product that we put out we can actually you know go out and and tour this show and actually sell tickets to an arena event you know a non-televised event so it just changed so many things and it's fun to watch it's fun for me well and it's fun to go back and relive too and, and really just to see the exponential growth that you had just over the course of a year, you know, we, we talk a lot about the phenomenal numbers that you guys did in 97, but really how it got to another level in 98. And it's just crazy, but that growth is happening here too. Let's take a look. February of 95, you guys are averaging 1,960 fans. Just a year later, you're up 85%. You're averaging 3,630 fans. Now that also translates at the turnstile. You're talking about an average gate of 26,200 in February of 95, but a year later in February of 96, you're up 58% 
41,500 is your average. And believe it or not, you're actually selling out some house shows, which at that point was really unheard of for WCW. Now, of course you're running fewer house shows, but the ones you are actually more meaningful and a good portion of those are selling out. Ratings are up too. You're going from a 2.2 to a 2.4. So you're up 9.1%, but here's the big news. Meltzer would write after seven years in business and an estimated 30 million in losses, world championship wrestling turned its first profit in 1995. The profit said to be rather small came despite added expenses of producing a live television show weekly. And in a sense, even saying the company was profitable should have an asterisk beside it. A large part of the carp or corporate structure. Well, there are ways of putting expenses on others books. And it is rumored that perhaps the biggest expense of all Hulk Hogan salary is largely on the Turner home entertainment books. In addition, Turner broadcasting now pays WCW approximately $4 million per year for its three cable television shows, which obviously makes all the difference in the world. As if that had been done during the Bill Watts or Jim Hurd eras, the company would have at least come close to profitability several years. So he continues down the rabbit hole, but I want to take a pause right there because you've told the story several times here about what a big deal it was the first time WCW was able to turn a profit, but Meltzer references, and you've made reference to this a lot because of the new guy Evans nitro book that there was some, shall we say, interesting accounting practices going on at the time. Clear yeah, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Clear up the rumor and innuendo about Hulk Hogan's salary largely being on the Turner home entertainment books. It's, it's just wrong. It's just factually wrong. Like so much of this type of reporting that took place at the time. I mean, there, there was, there was no truth to that in, in the suggestion. And, and, and again, this is, this is the, one of the reasons why I've always had such a a hard time with reports like this and reporters like, you know, I want to call him a reporter, uh, guys like Dave Meltzer, is you, you take these little tiny pieces of factual information and th- they're woven and distorted and spun into a fairy tale. It's like BuzzFeed <laughs> the news, you know, it, it, today in, in many respects. The, the And Dave is factually correct in in saying that the corporate structure the accounting structure of turner broadcasting was it was kabuki theater for finance it really really was now there was nothing illegal about it i want to make that really really clear you know because sometimes i've made these comments and people who i still know that are turner will call me up and say eric what what exactly were you trying to say you know let me clarify. There was a standard in, I guess, finance. I'm not a finance expert, but there was a, there was a standard in finance and accounting uh, called GAAP or generally acceptable accounting practices or something close to that, some acronym similar to that. And whatever Turner did was perfectly legal and fell within the parameters of, of GAAP accounting and finance principles. So I don't want to suggest that there was any, you know, hanky panky, you know, nefarious type of accounting going on, but it was, it was very difficult sometimes to figure out why, for example, you know, WCW was being hit with a lot of expenses from different operating divisions that we had nothing to do with, you know, we had no control over, we had no vote. 
We had no nothing. All of a sudden, we would just get hit. At the end of the year, we would look at our our financial reports, and we're getting hit with a lot of expenses that came from out of nowhere for us. You know, while Dave suggests that there was some, you know, unusual or let's say difficult to navigate kind of accounting within Turner Broadcasting, not just for WCW, for everybody, by the way, um, none of it benefited us. Despite the, the narrative, and that, that's to me, when I hear you read Dave's report, what I'm hearing is Dave saying, well, okay, they made a buck, big deal, after seven years, yep, they made a buck, but that's right. it really shouldn't count because right. you know they got this hanky-panky going on over here in accounting, and they're, they're really giving WCW money that they never gave them before. And if Bill Watts would have been a beneficiary of that type of accounting, then, w, then maybe he would have actually looked a little better than he did, and he wouldn't have been the buffoon that you know history will, will categorize him as. And you know, Eric doesn't really deserve all that much credit for doing the fucking impossible that nobody ever thought he could do, including the head of, of Turner Finance, a guy by the name of Harry Anderson, who literally got down on his knees in front of a group of WCW employees and handed us that first dollar of profit. It, it, the only reason any of that really happened is because of this kabuki-ish kind of goofy accounting. That's what I hear. And that's the narrative. It's subtle, but that's what Dave was trying to suggest. Because for so long, Dave, like everybody else, thought that I was a joke. I was never going to be successful. Nitro was never going to be able to compete with WWE. It was a dumb move. It should have never happened. Hogan was a huge failure. He should, WCW should have never brought him in. All of the narrative, all the negative that Dave dumped on WCW for so long, and myself included on a personal level, you know, all of that was blown up in his face. So he's got to report it. But in order to maintain his narrative and not look like a complete idiot, um, he spins it. And that's what this all is. You know, WCW, yeah, there was some goofy-ass accounting. Read about it in Guy Evans' book in detail from the people that were actually in charge of it. Not from me because people will, you know, listening to this podcast think that I've got an axe to grind or I'm trying to put myself over or I feel I'm defensive and all the, all of the things that keep people from wanting to really listen to what was really happening from my point of view. Don't take it from me. Read Guy Evans' book. L listen to what guys like Greg Prince, by the way, who didn't work for me. He worked for Vicki Miller in, in, in Turner Finance. Listen to what Greg Prince had to say about Turner Accounting when, when asked by Guy, Guy Evans about it and how that benefited WCW. It fucking didn't, Dave. Dave, call Guy Evans. Have a conversation. The accounting and the way it went down, if anything, was a huge problem for WCW because we were – and I've said this before. You know, If you go back and if anybody wants to take the time, I encourage you to do this. I don't have the time or the interest. But go back and you know, Turner Broadcasting was a publicly held company. You can go back and find their SEC reports. You can go back and you can find all their quarterly filings. If you really want to dig and you really want to be a smart fucker and, and know – you know what you're talking about. Go back and look at some of those quarter, you know, quarterly filings and SEC reports, where you'll look, you'll spend days trying to find WCW even in the report, and then eventually, when you get to the end of the report, after you get through all the miscellaneous stuff and how much money they spent on, you know, carpet cleaner and janitorial supplies, you'll see another little line, line item called other. That's WCW. We were the other. We were literally where they dumped 
all their leftover stuff that they couldn't figure out where to put, you know, somewhere else in terms of accounting. And, and by the way, not revenue. They never had a hard time. You know, nobody ever had, had a hard time saying, no, that's my revenue. Oh, no, that's my revenue. Where people got goofy was, no, those are my expenses. Those are their expenses. We wouldn't have incurred those expenses if it wasn't for this. And go back and look. You know, you don't take my word for it. But we, we made a profit. We turned a profit. No, despite Dave's reporting, there was no you know, hanky-panky going on with the accounting that somehow gave WCW in 95 some kind of unique, you know, advantage that Bill Watts didn't have previously. The fact is we were producing more. We were having more success. Sponsorship was starting to come in. As you yourself pointed out, we were actually seeing revenue from house shows as opposed to being at a big, big black hole of, of financial losses, which had been the case under previous administrations. Look at me. I sound like a politician. It's also worth mentioning that one of the things that you've got going for you in 1995 is you get some of the pay-per-view payoffs from 1994, which is pretty common. Those pay-per-view payoffs would always trail months after the actual show, but in particular, Halloween Havoc 1994 did really, really big business. It was the Flair Hogan retirement match in a cage and that money came in in 1995 and you guys had a major video game sale, which probably put you over the edge. What do you remember about the video game sale and and what that deal looked like relative to WCW's finances? Oh, I mean, it was THQ obviously is what you're talking about. I think, and it was a big number, you know, again, I hesitate only because I don't want to be redundant and point things out that I've pointed out many times in the past. But at this point, you know, again, put yourself in, in my shoes. You know, we're back in 1995, 1996. And all of the years previous to that that point, licensing and merchandising were non-existent. We knew what they were. We knew what the category was. We knew how it worked. We just couldn't generate any real meaningful revenue within that category. And to, to go – before I go further, I'm going to step back and into the weeds just a bit. At this period of time – there were essentially when I try to explain to people how wrestling worked as a business model, you know, it was essentially there were four legs to the table that supported the business. You know, if you think of the top of the table as the business and the business model, there were four legs that really supported it. You know, one was television, and we'll in our case that was uh, money that we could generate from sponsorship. You know, any any ad sales percentages that we got, you know, we got spiffed a little bit at the end, um, based on what, you know, ad sales in New York could sell. So tell revenue generated by television was one leg revenue generated by pay-per-view was another leg. The arena based revenue ticket sales was another leg and licensing and merchandising was the fourth leg. Now, when at that time, now it's different now because of, you know, digital revenue and things like that, but let's stay in at this period of time. If you could get your business so that all four of those legs, all four of those revenue streams were essentially equal. So you were making as much money you were working towards making as much money in house show revenue as you were on television and pay-per-view and, and licensing and merchandising, you were operating in an optimal kind of environment. You were, you are the Ferrari of sports entertainment, if you could possibly get 
those three legs operating on, on an equal basis. Now, we didn't come close to that. Pay-per-view was generating a lot more money, for example, than house shows. Um, pay-per-view was generating a lot more money than television was. Um, there was no money being generated by licensing and merchandising. None, none that mattered, anyway. So in WCW's case, that, that, that table, that, those four legs were so wobbly because they just weren't operating the way they should, that there was really no way that we could gain ground. But what we're seeing now in 96 is all of a sudden when THQ came into play for the first time in forever, that, you know, three-legged table that nobody could use because it would collapse the minute you put any pressure on it, all of a sudden was standing up and you were able to start building upon it and putting some weight on it and, and growing it. And it was largely because of the THQ business. And yeah, that had a big, it had a lot to do with our financial outlook and our projections. Um, and, but more importantly, you know, you brought up something that was really significant that doesn't necessarily feel like it. But because of the, the lag in accounting, now again, I don't know how other companies operate. I don't know how Turner operates today. But back then, you know, there was a point when we were finalizing our financial year, our fiscal year. You know, there was a there was a cutoff point for pay-per-view revenue because it was always a projection. We never really knew what we were going to get from cable providers. It was literally, let's put on the pay-per-view. We're going to enter into an agreement. We know what the terms of the agreement say. But the final collection of that revenue from the consumer was really 100% out of our control. We had nothing to do with it. And we were literally at the mercy of the pay-per-view provider, whether it be DirecTV or whoever it was at that time, Dish and all the other platforms that were delivering pay-per-view at the time, they would simply report, say, Here, here's what we took in, and we didn't even really have an opportunity to audit it, really, um, because we couldn't afford to alienate a relationship with that pay-per-view provider. Right. So we right. kind of took whatever they gave us, and oftentimes that revenue came in Three months, four months, five months, sometimes even six months later, it would, you'd start getting tranches of, of revenue would still hit the books. So going back to, you know, 94, when the, when the calendar closed and Don Edwards, who was the representative from Turner Finance, who really had the final say within WCW, said, OK, books are closed. You know, whatever revenue is in the doors, the revenue that we're going to report for this year um, that was it. Now, the good news for us, and we knew it because we knew 94 Halloween Havoc was a big pay-per-view, but we only got probably 60 or 70% credit for that revenue in that calendar year, 1994. We knew there was another big chunk coming early in 95. So we started 95 pretty much ahead of the game, and, and it was just like money falling out of the sky. Again, we knew it was coming. But from an accounting point of view, we didn't get any credit for it until early 95. So we started 95 out strong, largely because that that incremental, you know, that chunk of revenue that came in from 94, which was like free money because there were no expenses against it, fortunately. And obviously the THQ game. Those two things really made all the difference in the world. And there were other things. You know, we we cut a lot of expenses. Yeah. Hulk Hogan cost us, you know, a lot of money at the time. I think he was about two million a year, maybe two point five, something like that. Um, and there was, you know, there were other expenses that were new expenses there. But fortunately for us, you know, revenue outweighed it. 
Well, and you're also doing a bit of a talent swap. You, you've cut a lot of the, um, overhead we'll call it in, in wrestler salaries, big man, Vader, uh, Steve Austin, Ricky steamboat, Dustin Rhodes. Meltzer says in particular have all been mentioned as a reason the company didn't lose money. Although the theory behind paying someone a big salary is that they are worth that and much more in revenue coming in, or they shouldn't be getting that big of a salary. So in theory, the company, if they had those performers on the big shows should have taken in more revenue as well, but it's nice to get those numbers off the books and you replace them with key acquisitions that are probably going to cost you less guys like Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit. Uh, the big name that's mentioned here though, is Lex Luger. And we've talked about Lex's contract before, but Dave says Lex Luger probably came in making more money than any of the above mentioned names, except Vader looking for a great mother's day or father's day gift idea. I was, and I found it at paint your life with paint your life. You'll get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say paint your life transforms your photos into a one of a kind, beautiful hand painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame and you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at painterlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Just text the word weeks to 87204. That's weeks to 87204. Text weeks to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Is that, is that the way you remember it? Would Luger have cost more than, say, Austin Steamboat or Dustin Rhodes? Are we talking about when Luger came back in 95? That's right. Conrad, I know you like Dave. I know you guys go back a while. And, and I don't dislike Dave. I dislike a lot of the things that Dave writes. You know, if 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 I ever come across Dave in a social situation, I could easily sit down, and have a beer, and laugh about all this shit. I mean, there's not, despite what people think, because of the the, the way I write or sometimes the way I speak, it sounds like I'd want to strangle the guy if I ever saw him on the street. And that's just not true. I don't hate anybody. I don't even hate Vince Russo. I don't carry hate around with me. It's a it's a useless amount of weight and baggage to have to carry around every day. However. This is a perfect example, Conrad, of why I feel the way I feel about what Dave Meltzer, who professes to have respect and love for the business, he's just fucking so so wrong. And there's no reason for him to have been wrong. It was not a big secret that I signed Lex Luger for $150,000. $150,000. It wasn't a secret. 
I was somewhat proud of the fact. I made sure everybody in WCW knew, you know, because when Lex left, he was making seven hundred and fifty grand a year. Right. Lex was one of the highest paid pieces of talent in WCW when he left for WWF. When he came back, as we all know, I don't need to tell the story again. I was not excited about it. Sure. He, I brought him back because a, I knew I could use him. In, in a positive way in terms of, of, of surprising the audience and, you know, fulfilling that need that the audience has of, of being surprised in the show. So I knew I could check that box, but I, I figured, hell, I'm going to bring him back for 150 grand a year. And if he really is what he says he is and will really do what he promises me he'll do, he'll take that 150 grand and prove himself. And that's exactly what he did. So Dave Meltzer was so clearly wrong about what he put out there. And by the way, his theory about talent and who should be in the car and how they should get paid. Fucking Dave Meltzer's never run a business. He's never, he has no idea what he's talking about. His theory is a joke. And, and, and it's evidenced by the commentary that he wrote about Lex Luger. Lex Luger came in at 150 grand. By the way, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, about some of that other talent. Steve Austin, I think was probably making 225 at the time. You know, Dustin Rhodes was probably about 175. You know, those those names of guys, and I can't remember the other guys that you mentioned, these were all guys that, yeah, I mean, in the big scheme of things, you know, or even in today's environment, a couple hundred grand is a lot of money. But compared to and related to the kind of going rate for full-time talent, especially talent at their level, they were really not making that much money. Right. Now, I, I, I just want – the audience to be clear, the listeners to be clear about this. This is exactly why Dave Meltzer and a lot of the stuff that he reports, although some of the stuff is, you know, very credible. You know, I, I've said this from day one, you know, as you know, every week I seem to be setting him on fire, but at the same time, you know, as I'm putting the match to him and soaking him in gasoline, I'm also telling you that a lot of what he reported was very factual and very accurate when it came to, to statistics and ratings and, you know, things that he could get from other um, vendors or suppliers or, or people in the business. But when it came to this kind of stuff, he was just a goof. And this, this is a perfect example of it. Okay. Let's change the subject. I'm in a good mood. I want to talk about that moron. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the difference in 1996, of course. And Dave brings this on when we're covering the financial end of WCW. That 1996 is going to be much more challenging in his opinion to turn a profit than 95 relative to how many more times you have to produce live television. And we've sort of freestyled that here on the show about what those costs might be, but to say that they are a new level from a tape show is an understatement. So to produce that live show, not just 16 times as they had to in 1995. Now, in theory, they're going to incur that. 50 times or more in 1996. And it seems like the biggest revenue driver pay-per-view is down a little bit from 1995 because Halloween Havoc 95 didn't do what it did in 94 and Starcade 95 didn't do what it did in 1994. So if it looks like your biggest revenue driver indicator is trending downward, but you know that your expenses are going up with live TV. I could see how at this point, Dave could be concerned about the financial viability moving forward of nitro and with this new business model. Now, 
none of that's going to matter in a few months because Scott Hall is going to light a match and change everything for WCW. But at this time in early 1996, were you a little concerned when you see that pay-per-view buy rates are down a little bit and now, you know, man, my overhead's going way up for 96. We need something big. No, no, I was not concerned. If anything, I was extremely optimistic. And again, when I'm, I'm not even gonna mention his name anymore, cause I'm tired of sounding like I'm beating on him. But when anybody who was reporting about WCW's financials, who wasn't in WCW, who really didn't understand them. And, and it, <clears throat> in fairness to anybody who would have been writing about the time, um, it, it would have been hard to figure them out, you know, unless you were, you know, doing interviews with, you know, people like Vicki Miller and Greg Prince and Dick Cheatham. It's funny saying his name, isn't it? Dick Cheatham. Um, unless you were really sitting down and spending a lot of time with those guys, you wouldn't have the vaguest, even remote understanding of accounting and how WCW fit into Turner Broadcasting's, you know, business. So, you know, projecting <clears throat> or writing a story suggesting, you know, your your view of how you know WCW is going to be further challenged in 96 would be based on, I don't know, your guess, you know, a Ouija board, whatever, you know, writers used at that time to try to figure these things out. I wasn't concerned. And, you know, as Dave pointed out, you know, yeah, Halloween Havoc 1995 wasn't as good as 94. Okay. That's one pay-per-view. That's just one pay-per-view out of 12. Okay. Um, so to suggest that, well, if you compare October 95 to October 94, that trend doesn't look very good. I mean, whatever. I don't need to beat that up. It's pretty obvious, I think, to most people how ridiculous that is. It's one pay-per-view. Now, here's why I felt conf confident, because while, yes, obviously, you know, we had to produce a lot more live television, that was a wash for us. We, we came out of that even, you know, we, with the expenses of many of them that were associated with that also, you know, were, were absorbed in many respects. I'm trying to figure out the accounting system that we use at that point while I'm talking, but the, a lot of those expenses were allocated back to TNT, for example. And again, because of the way WCW operated, keep in mind, you know, the production team, that shot Nitro. That team wasn't employed by us. They were employed by Turner Broadcasting. So yeah, there was an expense in having them there. But Turner Broadcasting, who is beneficiary of Nitro, is the one that absorbed some of those expenses, many of those expenses. Not all of them, but many of them. So it wasn't as ominous as it would appear to someone who didn't know any better. Now, where I felt confident in terms of growth in revenue is I knew, and it was obvious by the increase in ratings, by what was happening in house shows in terms of increased interest in our product itself. I knew over the course of the year, that additional exposure that we were now getting in prime time that we didn't previously get in early 95 or 94, because we were still WCW Saturday night, 605 Eastern, 305 on the Pacific coast probably one of the worst day parts you could possibly be in if you're in the wrestling business. Um, historically, and it's still true today, Saturdays are death for television, unless you're college football or, or 
you know, division playoffs or something like that. Nobody watches television on Saturdays. They never have. They never will. And and for us to be able to now all of a sudden be in prime time, increasing our audience because we were in prime time, you know, taking advantage of some of the the the, the growth in our audience because of the Hulk Hogan's and you know bringing Lex back and the success of Nitro, all of that was eventually going to wind up translating to pay-per-view revenue because the formula is really kind of simple, you know, and, and I don't know what the formula was at the time, but it's basically, you know, if, if you're, if you've got 3 million people watching your show, 3% or 2% or whatever the percentage is are going to buy the pay-per-view. It just is. It, it's just a formula that never really changed. Now, if you got really hot and things were really rocking that two or 3% might actually convert to 4%, in which case, you know, you would see huge spikes in revenue. But we knew that as the audience grew, and generally speaking, as the audience grew because of our primetime exposure and improvement of the product overall, we knew that that growth in audience would translate to a growth in pay-per-view revenue over the course of 12 months. Didn't mean that every single pay-per-view was going to do better than the year-to-day performance of, uh, of its counterpart. It just meant that we we knew that over the course of a year, the average was going to probably be up 20, 30, 35% because that was the trend. I do want to, uh, talk about something that's happening, um, that maybe we haven't spent a lot of time on and WCW is sort of being challenged by Vince McMahon because on the January 8th edition of Monday night raw. Uh, they do this billionaire Ted's wrestling war room skit where we've got, uh, the huckster and the nacho man and billionaire Ted, and they're sort of taking shots at maybe some of the creative ideas where, you know, they're saying uncooked and uncensored and well, we've already stolen that idea and things like that. But then eventually they're trying to come up with the slogan where the big boys play. And of course, they're making old jokes where the old boys play, but then they really turn the heat up and the nacho man says, but what if we had to take a legitimate test for steroids and the huckster responds, don't worry. We're not in the world wrestling federation anymore. And the closing line of this skit is the WWF new generation. There's nothing old or artificial here. And immediately after the show, McMahon pushes out a statement that says the WWF is concerned about the wealth and well-being of its talent. And they use that skit to sort of demonstrate that, but they realize the use of steroids and other drugs of abuse is a serious issue and can pose health risk quote. Therefore, in a personal letter to Ted last week, I challenged him in the interest of the wealth and well-being of the athletes under his umbrella, as well as mine to implement a policy that would adhere to the same strict standards, which the WWF adopted several years ago. I also indicated that perhaps the only way this could occur is if we jointly select an independent drug policy advisor, collection agency, and testing facility, the WWF has taken the lead in developing a program with teeth in it. Hopefully Ted Turner will see the value in protecting his athletes as well. That's an interesting approach to say the least. When you see the skit, what is your gut reaction? And was there ever a conversation about this letter that Vince supposedly sent to Ted about steroids? 
well, sure, there were conversations about it, not not serious ones. Nobody overreacted uh, to it. I think most people looked at it for what it was, and it was a publicity, marketing, branding stunt. Um, and, I, and look, I'm, as you were reading that to me, I'm, I was starting to get fired up, and the old me was about ready to come out and start taking massive swings and connecting um, on, on this issue. But to say that it was ironic bordering on hypocritical, I think yeah. is a fair statement un, under the circumstances. But it was, look, Vince was doing what Vince felt he needed to do to be the underdog, to convince his audience that he was the better man and that he cared for his talent to try to convince the audience at the same time, by the way, that all of that old useless talent from WWF that is now hobbling around in WCW really shouldn't matter to anybody. That was the underlying message. You know, the, the ancillary, you know, messaging along with it, you know, is the, the conversation and, and things about steroids. Again, I'm just going to categorize that letter and, and that publicity at that time as being ironic, bordering on hypocritical under the circumstances. And it did, you know, we did take notice, obviously. But look, there was there was constantly, you know, Vince would come out, you know, he in one month he would have, you know, there'd be blood all over a pay-per-view and, you know, guys, you know, gigging each other and, you know, it was a bloodbath. And then two months later, you know, all of a sudden he would take the position, well, that's just wrong. We, we're not going to do that here in the WWF. The, you know, the Turner Broadcasting should cease and desist from, from that kind of barbaric, ruthless presentation of the product that has no place in our industry anymore. And then, of course, WCW overreacted to it, and and we, we put this policy in place, and then, boom, <laughs> there, there's blood in WWF again, you know, down the road. So the, there was this constant kind of attempt on Vince's part to to frame Turner as illegitimate, number one, to frame Turner as a company that only existed to try to put poor Vince McMahon and Linda McMahon out of business. They're just a family business for crying out loud. They're not a big, bad corporate behemoth like Ted Turner was. Um, that was it was an ongoing effort to to frame the battle that was going on at that point as Turner being completely unfair, not caring about talent, a bunch of old washed up wrestlers that shouldn't matter to the audience. And we're, you know, at WWF, Vince McMahon and family, we are the virtuous, you know, righteous, you know, sole practitioners in this industry and, and should be treated accordingly. Nobody really took it too seriously, to 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 be fair. Um, we talked about maybe the corporate response. You ever have a conversation with Hulk Hogan or Randy Savage about these skits? Uh, kind of a joking and the skits, you know, I know everybody in, in WWF was really excited about these skits and they were good skits, by the way, they were well-produced. They were funny. They had a strong message. I mean, if you just rated them on what they were and what their goals were, I mean, they were, t they were a 10 on a scale of one to 10. They were really, really well done. And they were funny as hell on our side of the equation. Everybody thought they were funny. Ted Turner thought it was funny. He didn't get angry. He didn't say, God damn it, Eric, I want you to do this. Here's $10 million. Go kick his ass. That didn't happen. 
You know, I think there were a couple of people that were a little nervous about what Ted's reaction was going to be. I think Bill Shaw was uh, Harvey Schiller, whoever it was at the time. I think it was Harvey at this time. You know, it was kind of like, uh, I guess I got to go show this to Ted. This is going to be interesting. That was kind of the tone uh, of it. But in when Ted saw them, now I wasn't in the room when Ted saw them. So I want to make that really clear. I don't want to mislead anybody, unlike, you know, certain writers. I wasn't in the room, so I'm 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 tr- I'm telling you what was told to me. Um, Ted laughed his ass off. Thought it was funny, and after that, you know, after we found that out, you know, yeah, when I saw Hulk or I talked to him on the phone, we laughed about it. Right. He was like, you know, here's the deal. This is the this was the fun part. You know, the real behind the scenes. How did the boys react? You know, what was the real impact of those scenes on WCW? Here was the real impact. No bullshit. Everybody was surprised. He was selling as hard as he was. Right. He was crying like a little girl. He was screaming. He wasn't just selling. He was screaming. And, you know, for the for a guy who's. You know, Vince McMahon, for a guy whose who's philosophy was just don't ever sell, just don't react, right. they don't exist. You know, we are, we're in our own world. They don't even exist in our world. That was his, his, his method of operation at the time. Sure. And now he's, now he's screaming like a little bitch. And I think everybody laughed, but we got a kick out of that. I was like, Wow. Finally got his attention. Now he's <laughs> now he's whining. It's it was pretty interesting. It, but it wasn't like God damn it, Eric. We got to stop him from doing that. You know why doesn't Turner sue him? There was nothing defensive about it. It was really you know more laughing at him because they were funny, and recognizing that Vince's man was was selling like a little bitch. Meltzer would say that. Um, well, I'll just read it to you. The wrestling war got stranger on January 15th when Eric Bischoff, who started the television name calling campaign, abruptly shut up and WCW ignored all the barbs thrown in its direction. After a televised skit, which implied that WCW doesn't have a legitimate steroid policy, WCW responded first with threats of a lawsuit. Then with Bischoff defending the policy in place and pointing remarks back at the WWF by noting that three WWF headliners had failed steroid tests. While with WCW, that's an interesting response. Um, it's pretty well known that, uh, what's up everyone. It's reality. Steve, your number one source for all things, bachelor nation and reality TV every day. I'm giving you the behind the scenes juice and your info on all your bachelor nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Sid is one of those names. Do you remember the other two? No, I don't. It is fun, though, that you sort of pointed out the hypocrisy back then in that entire approach, shall we say, especially knowing that you had JJ Dillon on your side and JJ was privy to a lot of, uh, what was real and what wasn't in the WWF. Did you ever have a conversation with JJ about the WWF steroid policy? No, I never did. And I, I've said, you know, 
I've covered this before once or twice, but you know, I, what, I hired JJ. I, I brought him in on the recommendation of Kevin Nash. We didn't really have anybody that functioned in a talent relations role. You know, when I came to WCW, there was no talent relations person um, when I was an announcer. Uh, throughout <clears throat> the evolution, I guess, of my role in management, you know, we never had the need or saw the need or understood, I guess is a better way of saying it, the need for talent relations, really, uh, in a formal position. It wasn't until we started really growing and with Nitro, the addition of new talent, that it became obvious that we really did need somebody in that role. It really was a functional, necessary role that we have one person who only handled talent relations. And, and work closely between the legal side of the business, which is the people that generated the agreements and had to work within the framework of those contracts in case there were breaches or, or issues and that type of thing. But we also needed somebody that, you know, worked closely with the wrestling operations side of the business and understood that side as well. So Kevin came along when it became apparent. I don't remember the year. Probably was 95, uh, late 95 perhaps. When Kevin came along and said, look, you know, J.J. Dillon's available. He was Vince's guy. You know, he understands you know, he, he understands the wrestlers. I hate to refer to them as the boys, as we all know. Understands talent. You know, he's worked in that position before. He understands the office. He's worked in that position before. He's the guy. And and I, I trusted Kevin's judgment at the time. I didn't know J.J. I'd never met him. I, I guess heard of him because of the Four Horsemen thing, but I had never laid eyes on him <clears throat> in person or even on tape. So, you know, Kevin further explained JJ's personal situation. I thought, all right, great. Here's here's a guy that's got the experience. He's worked with WWF. He understands both sides of the, the equation in terms of the talent side and the business side. And we need somebody. Let's bring him in. It's not like I could put an ad in the paper and, you know, start interviewing people for talent relations who had experience. You know, So I brought him in. And shortly after bringing him in, you know, JJ, and I understand it. I understood it then, but um, JJ came up to me one day. I remember I was standing right in the the atrium of the WCW offices before we moved over to um, Log Cabin. And Log Cabin, by the way, was the name of the office that we had outside of CNN Center once we got moved out of the building. But we were still in the CNN Center, and I was walking to my office, and JJ stopped me and said, Eric, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. What do you got? And he opened up a, a folder, and in handwritten notes, he showed me payouts for all the WWE talent from right before he left. And I looked at that. Now, keep in mind, it's not, you know, I'm not virtue signaling here, you know, um, and suggesting that I was so far above wanting to know you know, inside information. I wasn't. Um, I was aggressive. I, I, I was a go for the throat kind of person at that point. I was willing to do anything and everything to be number one. There was a lot of positive things about my, the way I did business. And there were some flaws, you know, in, in there as well. But when JJ opened that information up to me and, and showed me information that he clearly stole, he wasn't supposed to have that information. When you leave the, somebody's employment, particularly if there's a severance or any kind of a payout or or even if you're just leaving on good terms, you don't take records with you. I mean, that's kind of fundamental, right? 
So when JJ opened this up and was willing to share that with me, I, I caught myself not because I'm just I'm the most honest, you know, virtuous person in the world, but because we're in the middle of a fucking lawsuit. I, I, uh, the idea that he would share that information with me, you know, under the in the in the situation we were in, number one, was really poor judgment on his part. But here's what I thought about, and this is something a, a guy who was a mentor to me when I was a little kid taught me, you know, if somebody is willing to screw you out of a nickel, they'll, t they'll screw you out of a dollar. And if they're willing to screw you out of a dollar, they'll take everything you want. That's just the nature of that, that person. And with a guy like JJ, and I, I kind of thought about that, you know, in a, in a flash moment, I thought, you know what, if he's will, if JJ is willing to do this to Vince McMahon, if he's willing to hold on to records that he shouldn't really have in his possession, number one, but willing to share them with the competition, he'll do the same thing to me at some point. That's who that person is. So whether I really wanted to see the information or not, and by the way, at that point, it didn't matter. And that's another reason why I just didn't even look at it. But what really stood out to me is this is a guy I can't trust ever. If he's willing to screw Vince McMahon, he will screw me. It's not like JJ and I had any long-standing, long-term relationship that went back decades. And even though he's, you know, showing me something that he shouldn't be showing me and has information he shouldn't have, you know, he would never do that to me because of our relationship. I never met the dude before. Never had a syllable of conversation with him before I hired him. So I knew that he was just not somebody that I could really trust. So a lot of the you know, information that I would have probably liked to have had that would maybe even have been legitimate when wondering about or discussing, you know, WWE's or WWF's at that time, former steroid policy. Um, I just didn't go. JJ wasn't a source for me. I just kind of I didn't want to fire him. Just wasn't in my nature to fire the guy. <clears throat> it wasn't that uh, egregious of a, a of, of an event in my opinion to fire him for it. But I also knew I just wasn't going to trust him. He was not going to be in my inner circle. Let's put it that way. Um, so no, I didn't go to JJ and ask about it. And look, let's, let's talk about steroid policies in, in 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, 2000. And to a certain degree, even today, now technology has changed a lot. You know, testing, the procedures for testing have evolved from what was basically prehistoric kind of testing procedures and, and unrefined and, and, and not very accurate, to say the least, um, to procedures now and, and capabilities now that didn't exist back then. But there were flaws in W. There were plenty of flaws in WCW steroid policy. By the way, there were plenty of flaws in WWE's policy as well. I mean, they were throwing stones at, at us, but their own policy was riddled with flaws. Now, it's not because they didn't care. It's not because they weren't trying, they meaning WWF. It's not because they were just trying, trying to put on a show and convince the world they were really doing something for the best interests of their talent, when indeed they really weren't. That was not the case. And I want to be clear about that. But it was neither the case in WCW. In WCW, it was sloppy. In WCW, the testing – fuck, Harvey Schiller went to the head of the U.S. Olympic Committee for the 1996 – 94 or 96 Olympics, hired the guy who 
oversaw and supervised the testing policy for the fucking Olympics, not just the United States, the Olympics. So it's not like there wasn't an effort there to put in place a good policy. It's the fact of the matter was the testing policy across the board in the NFL, you know, in, in WWE, WCW, and any other sport in the Olympics was fraught with inconsistencies and, and lack of capabilities that looked like it was a joke. And, you know, for Vince to be throwing rocks at us at that time was, you know, like I said, it was kind of like the height of hypocrisy. Let's talk about the next week on Monday night raw. They do another one of these billionaire Ted skits. And this time uh, they're implying that Ted Turner wanted to buy the WWF, but he couldn't. And he wished he had Shawn Michaels instead of Hulk Hogan. And that all WCW was able to buy from the WWF was a con man, which was scheme Gene Okerlund, someone disloyal, Randy Savage, and a has been from the eighties, Hulk Hogan. Um, what do you think? Are any of the guy, I mean, is, is mean Gene, does he get a chuckle at this? Do you take the, I mean, this is obviously not nearly the implication that it was the week before with steroids. But it is, I don't know, childish. Um, is anybody bothered at all as these scheme gene skits continue and now they're bringing in new characters? I can't, obviously can't speak for Gene, but what I remember, Gene didn't put it over. He didn't sell it. I think Gene's feelings were hurt. Sure. You know, Gene still had a lot of affection for Vince McMahon and Kevin Dunn and a lot of the people, you know, Gene left WWF for his own reasons. Um, but it doesn't, he still really had a strong connection to WWF. I think it hurt Gene's feelings. You know, and I remember I'm trying to remember, trying to picture, you know, my conversations with him at the time. And I, I think it's safest to categorize them as subdued which is not, that's not Gene, you know, Gene was, Gene was loud and, and you could always kind of figure out where Gene was coming from. He, he tried to make a joke about everything. He was always lighthearted, even in, in the, in the face of, you know, negative situations. Gene, Gene tried hard not to sell this. In fact, he tried so hard not to sell it. He was selling it. If, if that makes sense to you. Um, because he was, he was acting in a way that was unusual for him. And I can only interpret that as his feelings were hurt. Really? Everybody else were kind of in a weird way applauding ourselves because to, to have to, for Vince McMahon to resort to selling and, and putting us over the way he was, even though he was taking shots at us and the audience didn't feel that way. You know, Vince is trying to convince them to feel a certain way about Randy and about Hulk and about Gene, but it wasn't working. And for Vince to be trying the way he was trying to us represented a victory because we were forcing him to do something he was philosophically opposed to doing, which is recognizing the competition. Let's talk a little bit about some news, uh, and your response to a criticism, because I always enjoy when these legends sort of grow the uncensored show the prior year had an interesting, well, we'll call it interesting. There was a match where 
Blacktop Bully and Dustin Rhodes are in the back of a moving flatbed truck having a match. And Mike Graham is the agent for this match. And allegedly, uh, you told these guys do not get color, AKA bleed in this match. And they do it anyway. And as a result, you fire all three. Um, when you're sort of quizzed on this, uh, a year later in an, in an article in the Dayton daily news, you say that WCW doesn't have a policy regarding blood, but that the blood won't appear on television quote. If someone is cut or decides creatively to get exciting inside the ring, it doesn't matter. The director knows he can't shoot it for TBS and TNT on pay-per-view. Everybody turns up the intensity a notch or two from time to time stuff happens. So it's sort of implied here that these guys weren't fired for getting color. They were fired for disobeying orders from you set the record straight. What really happened with those three guys and your decision to cut them. WCW legal, the legal side of Turner broadcast, not WCW legal Turner legal was beginning to react to some of the attempts, some of the criticism from WWF. Keep in mind, AIDS was kind of a big deal at this point. Um, And there was valid concern, and there should have been, that the consistent use of blood and blading as a storytelling device in professional wrestling, although it had been going on in WWF, it had been going on in NWA, it had been going on in WCW, It had been going on in every territory around the country since the beginning of television time. It was not a new phenomenon. But because of health issues and concerns, which were valid at the point, and WWE capitalizing on that and trying to further um, make WCW conform to a standard that they hadn't previously conformed to, in other words, to affect us, uh, WWF, and Vince McMahon were putting a lot of pressure, not on me. I never got any mail that I can recall from Vince or from WWF. It would all go to, you know, Turner legal or to Ted Turner, which immediately would get to Turner legal. Ted wouldn't even look at it. Um, and legal would react accordingly. Now you've worked with enough attorneys. You've probably worked in risk management. I'm, I'm guessing, or had some access to it in the mortgage business. I'm sure risk is a major part of the a major part of doing business. And there's always a group of people that, you know, their job is to watch out for and anticipate worst case scenarios. So what happened was, as a result of Vince, you know, beating the blood drum, um, Turner Legal sent word down to me that going forward. No more blood. Great. Now, in I, because honestly, I agreed with it, and it's not. Again, I'm not virtue signaling here. It's not that I was such a righteous person. I just never liked it. I never thought most of the time, 99 times out of 100, when we saw blood, it was unnecessary. It didn't really add. And I know there's a lot of talent, especially older talent. You know, guys like Ric Flair and and even Hulk and and a lot of other guys at that time absolutely disagreed with me but i never liked it to me it was just yeah so when that policy came down from when it wasn't a policy it was like i guess it was it wasn't in writing but it was like here's your memo don't do it anymore i then communicated that to talent and 
again, it was under pressure from people that I had to respond to. There were certain people I couldn't just tell the fuck off. I couldn't tell legal to fuck off and I couldn't tell finance and, and to fuck off. And I, and I certainly, you know, had to work within certain parameters. So I, I communicated that to the talent. Now I also knew, and what I communicated, I told the talent, do not blade, do not intentionally gaff yourself so, you know, you bleed in the body of a match. It's no longer acceptable. It's Turner Broadcasting. You can't do it, especially on television. Television was a little bit different than, than pay-per-view. There was a little latitude in pay-per-view. But when they did it, they, meaning Dustin, who was a great friend of mine, by the way. <laughs> we went hunting together, him and his dad and I. So it was not a pleasant experience for me. Uh, Blacked up bully, friend of mine. We hung out together in Minnesota. We knew we had the same friends. We, I mean, it was not an easy thing for me to do. I didn't have the same relationship with Mike Graham um, for a lot of reasons, but even with Mike, I didn't really want to have to fire him, but I had to do something. I had to make a stand. I had to demonstrate to everybody else on, on the roster and in the company that it's just not acceptable. So I did fire them. And I also made sure they all knew I was going to hire him back. <laughs> it was going through the motions for me. I had to do something meaningful. It hurt him financially. I guess it was more of a suspension than anything else, really. Um, but I had to make a move. And I did. That's all there was to it. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, Clash of the Champions. Because on our way to Super Brawl, you guys do a clash on January 23rd in Las Vegas. It draws a sellout 3,100 fans there, 2750 of them paid 52 grand. It's a Caesar's palace. And, uh, it's the second night of a two night sellout double header. Nitro and clash are just one night apart here. Uh, clash gets a 4.5 rating and a 6.6 share. Uh, up to this point, it's the highest viewed wrestling show on TBS. So huge success. And we see the return of, uh, Elizabeth. And the road warriors, but what really takes up a lot of space in the observer that week is a discussion about Nancy Sullivan. Of course, Kevin is involved in WCW, but his wife works for ECW and apparently Hulk Hogan has an idea for her and wants to use her. And that causes Kevin Sullivan to have to, for lack of a better word, negotiate with Paul Heyman about how he might be able to land Nancy for this show including offering a bit of a talent swap loan us Nancy for this show. And we'll send the public enemy back down. And allegedly Paul Heyman doesn't want anything to do with that. He wants other WCW talent to come in and put over his talent cleanly or nothing at all. And there's lots of back and forth because Kevin, according to the newsletter, feels like he has to deliver Nancy because that's what Hogan wants. He wanted some sort of interaction between Nancy and Elizabeth. Ultimately, Nancy wound up making the shot for WCW. Her time in ECW came to an end and she was full-time with WCW moving forward. But even up until the day of the show, uh, nobody knew for sure what Nancy was or wasn't going to do on the ECW side. What do you recall about the way this whole Nancy from ECW to WCW transition happened? I wasn't involved with it at all. In even remotely so to me it sounds like so much of a lot of what was written at that time 
about the backstage, backstage machinations and politics. Um, I don't know how much of it was truth. I don't know how much of it was fabricated. I wasn't there, wasn't part of the negotiations or any discussions or phone calls. So I can't say. I mean, it's not that I don't recall. It's just that I wasn't involved. So it would be impossible for me to be honest in any kind of recap of that. Uh, it sounds highly suspicious to me, but that's just me. The Clash of the Champions was a good show. Maybe we'll cover it another time. Regal got a win over Benoit. Public Enemy goes to a double DQ with the Nasty Boys. Dean Malenko beat Alex Wright. They were supposed to have a Kevin Sullivan Disco Inferno match, but thankfully uh, we didn't need that. Uh, Brian, <laughs> Brian Pillman and Eddie Guerrero uh, had a match. Brian got the win there. Uh, the interesting thing about that match, and probably the most interesting thing about the entire show, is this is where Pillman's doing the sort of loose cannon deal, and he starts to... Uh, grab the jacket of Bobby Heenan and Bobby Heenan on the air says, what the fuck are you doing? He's very upset because Bobby has a bad neck and back. And this was not discussed ahead of time. And Bobby was watching the monitor as any good play-by-play or color commentator would, and not really as aware of his surroundings because he's so entrenched in watching the monitor. So when he feels someone grabbing at him, it's natural to have a reaction, especially if you have a bad neck. Well, after he says that on the air, he storms out and then regains his composure and comes back and quickly apologizes for losing control. But this is, uh, an interesting moment that people still talk about with Brian Pillman. What, um, what do you remember of that incident and the fallout? There was no fallout. You know, look, it was live television. We, it, it wasn't like. There were a bunch of, you know, religious fanatics running Turner Broadcasting. Um, there was no cult at that time, at least, that was determining what was appropriate and inappropriate for, for television. Um, this was this was before, you know, Terry Tingle. I love saying her name. Talk about a talk about a great stripper name, Terry. Tingle. Now on the main stage, you've seen her in Las Vegas. You've seen her in LA. It's Terry Tingle. <laughs> but this was before Terry Tingle came along in standards and practices. I think everybody recognized, look, in a live television show, just like in live sports, shit happens. You know, you hear things that you, you don't intend it. You don't script it. You don't set it up. You don't rehearse it. But in the heat of the moment or in a combustible situation, which that was where you're improving, you're kind of going or improving, you're kind of going off script. You're, you're playing to the crowd. You're reacting. You know, you do certain things. Shit happens. And, you know, I think there was a three second delay at the point. Now, whether it was effective or not, I don't know. I don't recall, but nobody, there was no, there was no overreaction. There was no reaction at all. It was like, oh shit, that's not supposed to happen. Come on, guys, clean up, clean it up. But other than that, which was all just internal, you know, it, it, there was no external reaction to it at all. It was not that big a deal, um, as one might think. Uh, now, as far as the incident itself, I understand why Bobby went off. You know, Bobby, Bobby was peculiar when it came to he he liked to he liked to know. That's because of the way Bobby came up. You know, he we didn't appreciate not being smartened up. It's one of the you know I didn't have the best relationship with Bobby towards the end of his his run with WCW, and I I regret that I really do. 
Um, I'm not sure that I could have done anything any differently or would have. I could have, obviously, but I'm not sure I would have. But at the end of it all, and I think back now, you know, I've seen certain shoot interviews that Bobby did towards <clears throat> the end. Um, Bobby didn't have a lot of respect for me. He didn't like me uh, because I didn't bring him up to speed on a lot of things because of the way that I like to produce talent. I liked real reactions to things. I liked people to give me an organic, believable, sincere reaction to something, not something they'd been thinking about for two days before the event so they could work their shit in, you know, get their, get their little lines in, get themselves over. And I'm not suggesting that Bobby did that, by the way. But my overall approach to all talent was to only tell them what they absolutely needed to know at a bare fucking minimum. Um, now, Bobby, Bobby, you know, maybe felt that it was planned. Maybe he thought that we could have smartened him up. I don't know. I wasn't in Bobby's head at the time. Bobby and I didn't talk about it. You know, it's not like he came running to me after the event and said, what the hell? Why didn't you tell me Pillman was going to grab me? Why don't you tell Pillman never to lay a hand on me? There was not, none of that. that. None of that happened. It was a spontaneous moment. Bobby reacted the way he reacted. Brian, mm, I don't know if he should have gave Bobby the Iggy and let him know he was going to do it before he did it because I don't think Brian knew he was going to do it before he did it. But it probably wasn't as big a deal internally as it seemed like it probably was outside of WCW. Well, what is a big deal is you do a sit down that's uh – I don't know, maybe 10 minutes with Mike Tanay on the January 23rd Nitro. This is of course, just one week after, um, the most recent billionaire Ted skit. So we've seen, we've discussed the most recent two, and now you're going to have a response and you say, um, clearly it's desperation. Clearly he's a desperate man doing desperate things, talking about Vince McMahon. And you say the best defense is an aggressive offense and you're, uh, you're really taking the high road here in a lot of stuff. Um, not because I wanted to, and, not because I wanted to. And you also address the steroid issue where you say, quote, here's a guy who spent the better part of three years in court because he has a problem and had a problem. And you knock the gold dust gimmick and say, quote, Vince, if that's the epitome of your creativity, I feel sorry for you, end quote. And you praise Dustin as a wrestler and as a person and say it's embarrassing what Vince is doing to him. And you continued this whole I feel sorry for you attitude when you addressed the proposed billionaire Ted match at WrestleMania, saying, quote, I feel sorry for Vince McMahon if he has to hire imposters to draw a number on his pay-per-views, end quote. And you then finish by saying that McMahon is the Vern Gagne of the nineties and his time has come and passed. Uh, this sit down interview here with Mike today, where you sort of address all of this, this is, um, kind of a big deal because nothing like this had really happened in wrestling before and where, you know, the, the quote unquote boss sits down and just talks frankly about the competition Whose idea was this? Were you pleased with the result? My idea. And yeah, I was pleased with it. It was honest. It was, it, it gave me an opportunity to, as you said, you know, you took the high road and that generally wasn't my approach to things. Um, but I was encouraged is probably not the right word, but I don't want to get too strong. I was encouraged strongly. Um, to not 
take my usual approach because I can be, I can be much more acidic and, and I can generally, I, in that, especially back then, I would put a much sharper edge uh, on my tone and my approach to things. But I, I was, I was advised and counseled. That's the right way to say it. I was counseled to take a higher, you know, a higher road in a more sophisticated approach to it and not kind of get down in the mud, which was my nature. Let's talk about the, uh, the next big show, which is January 29th. It's a nitro from Canton, Ohio. There's 3,500 fans here paying 36,000. Uh, Conan is going to have a U.S. title match with one man gang. Flair is going to work with Hogan. The road warriors are going to work with the faces of fear. Then believe it or not, uh, here's something interesting. Sherry is working with Medusa and, uh, they go a minute and 49 seconds. Meltzer would say this wasn't done as a wrestling match, but simply a way to give the audience panty shots of Sherry and Meltzer would write. There is tremendous heat regarding Sherry and Medusa. Sherry had no idea the German suplex was coming from behind as it wasn't booked in advance. However, Medusa did get approval to do it from someone in power, but Sherry never got the word and was knocked silly. Sherry didn't want to work with Medusa, but her own position has been tenuous since she missed her flights to Japan in November and apparently thought if she refused to do the match, she may lose her job. However, she insisted on going over in the match in order to do the match, which explains the result. It is interesting to me, uh, that everybody is sort of on eggshells at times about their job and Sherry, somebody we don't talk a lot about. What do you remember about this match with Medusa and maybe what her position with the company was, was she deemed as unreliable? Was she having some sort of outside the ring issues? What was your take on Sherry here in early 96? And do you remember this match in particular? I I don't remember the match and I wasn't involved in laying it out. So I can't speak to, you know, how the match was laid out and whether Sherry and Medusa spent enough time talking, which would normally be the case, by the way, I can't think of a time when, you know, any talent that I've ever worked with, whether I was the agent or was involved in laying out their matches or not, would come to the ring without having communicated what they were going to do with each other. I mean, bizarre as you're laying it out it sounds a little it sounds a little kabuki-ish to me just from the get-go but that doesn't mean that during the course of the match medusa decided she was going to do something that that was improv or that they hadn't discussed and that it was a problem that i believe could have happened very easily but i wasn't involved in that I, my, my role at this point had nothing to do with laying out matches with talent make that clear um but let, I mean, I'm not really sh- go ahead. I'm sorry. Let me, let me ask the reason I'm, I'm bringing this up because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are like, why would we be talking about a Sherry Medusa match? The next week she was fired, uh, on that live nitro, she was supposed to do an angle where she was going to destroy Colonel Robert Parker's car with a, like a baseball bat or a sledgehammer, but Meltzer would report quote, she was in no condition to do so. She's been on thin ice since missing her plane for the Japanese shows in November and there appears to be some concern she might file suit against the company. What was going on with Sherry here? Oh, this is so weird. After all these years, there's certain people that I, I just don't like, first of all, I don't like talking about anybody that's passed away. It's just, I, I, I just, I don't like doing it. And I'm going to be honest with you as my 
partner in this journey, as well as the people that listen to it. I, look, Sherry had issues, like a lot of talent. There was, you know, there was alcohol, there was prescription drugs, there was a lot of things going on with a lot of the talent, not just Sherry. And, and we all, and I'm going to throw myself in there too, we, we all experimented into things that we probably shouldn't have or wish we wouldn't have during that period of time. Um, but some people were more affected by it than others. And I think Sherry had a challenge with, with, with some of those issues. And yeah, it was a problem. And that's about as much as I'm going to say. I get it. No problem with that. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about your money. You know, that's something that we don't talk a ton about. Meltzer would report Bischoff signed a three-year deal to continue running WCW at between 350,000 to 500,000 per year. It is interesting when you turned your first profit and you've, you're about to just set the wrestling world on fire in a handful of months that you re up here. Hindsight being what it is might've been a good idea to get a new contract a year later, huh? You know, I can be a real fuck up when it comes to my own personal things. You know, like I, I didn't care about the money. I just didn't care. I, no one's going to believe it. And I, and I don't blame you for not believing it. It's just, I've never cared about let me put it this way. That's, that's wrong. I'm, I'm not being honest about that. Well, yeah, I was going to say, uh, you were strutting that ass that we were the highest grossing revenue producing podcast in uh, the December of 2018. I know for sure that you were bragging about that behind the scenes that our shit did more than yours. No, of course. And I'm proud of that. You know, I'm proud of the fact that largely because of you and Dave Hancock and Dave Silva and Jeff and Steve Kaufman and a whole group of people that you work with at 83 weeks was the highest grossing from a revenue point of view podcast in the world in the month of December, 2018. I'm proud as hell about that, but I'm proud of it because of the work that went into it. I'm proud of it because of the team that put it together. I'm proud of it because, you know, let's face it, Bruce Pritchard is so far off into the distance is number one to be able to do anything to get a little closer than we are to him makes me feel good but it's not the money that's the most important it's the work it's the effort it's the creativity it's the approach that i'm most proud of i've never put money before work i've always put the work first whether and and it's sometimes it served me really well by the way i just don't think money is always the most important thing and, and my head at this time – now, there's some things that happened in 1998 that I've never, ever talked about with anybody but my attorney and my wife. And maybe – and I'm not sure we're going to talk about it here. And I don't mean that to be a tease. But there, there were things that happened along the way that made me rethink my position about putting myself first and putting money ahead of everything else. But at this point in time – I didn't care. I was having so much fun. And and what motivated me, and this is going to make me sound like a fucking teenage kid, but I don't care. What motivated me was making Ted proud. What motivated me was being the person, regardless of how much money I made or didn't make, 
being the person that was finally able to, to do what everybody thought was impossible and turn WCW around. That was my, that was my money. That was my motivator. And, and I, you know, I never negotiated a contract. They, they, they made me an offer. They put it on paper and I signed it. I didn't even have an attorney read it. I didn't spend the money on an attorney to make sure I wasn't getting screwed because I, I was so loyal and wanted so much. And again, not because of my ego got, you know, people will write about and suggest that my ego was so big. It wasn't that it was, I, I mean, I did have an ego. I'm not denying I had one, of course, and I still do by the way. And it's very fucking healthy and I feed it on a regular basis to keep it healthy. But at that time, what I really wanted to do was turn the company around and be the guy that that achieved Ted's long-term vision for WCW and justify all of the shit that Ted Turner took. And granted, nobody gave him too much shit because he was chairman. But you know what I mean. You know what I'm saying. I don't need to beat it to death. So the money was not an issue for me. And I didn't really care. In comparison, you know, I could have probably made twice as much money or more than I did because at this particular time, I was on a – I was on the roll of roles. I had Harry Anderson, the comptroller of Turner Broadcasting, on his fucking knees handing me a dollar in front of a group of employees he never wanted to be seen with before. That was pretty important to me. It literally brought a tear to my eye. And I'm not saying that to be dramatic. When that moment happened at that little Mexican restaurant, you know, in downtown Atlanta, I could not have been prouder. And the amount of money that I was making had nothing to do with it. That was my motivator. So, yeah, I was making – I'm I'm not dismissing it, by the way. I was making – for me, for a guy that came to WCW, you know, number one, when I was hired, um, I was fucking living on pork and beans and hot dogs that I was feeding my kids and rice. Uh, My house was being heated with small little portable propane heaters that I bought at a hardware store because I couldn't afford to put – you know, propane gas in my, in my heating unit, in my, my home, you know, my cars are being repossessed out of my driveway. Literally I'd sit at my kitchen table and just wait for the tow trucks to show up and start hauling shit away. I mean, life was pretty shitty for me when I went to Turner Broadcasting. And when I got hired, I got hired at $70,000 a year. And I thought I was rich because compared to what I was making, I was, I was actually able to, pay bills and and heat my home and feed my kids. So I, I was so happy just to be there and to have a job that was, you know, every two weeks the check would come that I, I put the money aside and focused on the work. So yeah, I, I got a new contract. I probably could have waited. I probably could have, I know I could have negotiated for more. My second one, the, the last one that I did, I really could have, you know, had I, applied any pressure at all, um, probably doubled or more the amount of money that I was making. And I was making significant money when I left. Um, I don't have the contracts any longer. I don't remember off the top of my head what it was, but I was deep into six figures. And with all the other added incentives and bonuses and, you know, the incentives were incentives, but they were almost guaranteed based on the way things were going. It was just a different way for them to pay me the amount of money that they wanted to pay me without putting me so far out of line with other executives. And that was the other thing, you know, with Turner Broadcasting, you know, for the guy who's running WCW to be making more money than the guy who was the head of the TNT network was kind of not appropriate. So they had to find ways to compensate me that 
didn't necessarily come in the form of a salary or a contract amount, but for the most part assured me I was going to be getting spiffed way and above, you know, my the face value of my agreement. So I was thrilled to death. I didn't really care. If they would have said, yeah, we're going to cut you back down to 150 grand a year, I probably wouldn't even have bitched. Uh, let's talk about uh, the February 5th Nitro. We briefly said a minute ago, this is the show where Sherry was supposed to beat up Colonel Robert Parker's car. And ultimately she is relieved of her duties, but that show is notable for another reason. You guys lose power <laughs> during the, uh, sting and Lex Luger match where they're taking on the road warriors. It's the Lakeland civic center and the power goes out for several minutes and TNT first shows a slide of TNT nitro. And then they go to a commercial after commercial. Uh, before the backup generator is finally able to get enough power to run the television shoot. And according to the sources, after the fact, the power failure was a result of a construction foul up at the adjacent exhibit hall, which caused the entire power situation all over the complex to go out. Uh, you're on the air and you have to sort of address what the hell's happening for the audience. And you said something like desperate people do desperate things. I like the competition. I love a good fight. If the fight isn't good, I don't like being in it. Vince McMahon takes great exception. And you actually the next week have to come out and apologize for insinuating that the WWF caused the power failure. I'm sure you were doing that almost tongue in cheek. No, man, that pisses me off hearing this. I forgot all about that. See, Oh, I didn't want to apologize. First of all, apologize for fucking what? This is coming on the heels of the, 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 the accusations about steroids and blood in WCW, you know, the nacho man stuff, the billionaire Ted skits, all the crap that, that Vince McMahon was throwing. And then we had a bunch of geeky fucking attorneys who had no real purpose in life other than to, you know, run around screaming, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, forced me to do that. That's bullshit. They should have never forced me to do that. We should have built a storyline around it. I should have challenged Vince McMahon to a fight right fucking there and then. That's what should have happened. But instead, now we get the sanitized, you know, just lawyer legalese, just nah, chicken shit lawyers. I look, I have, I have a couple good lawyers. I have a couple good friends that are lawyers and one or two of them are my lawyers and we all need good lawyers, but I think there's way too many of the motherfuckers. We should like thin the herd. There should be a law that is passed in Congress effective next month that everybody that's a lawyer has to submit a resume. And unless you've done some really important shit, go find another job because there's just too many lawyers. There was no need for me to apologize. There was no need from some jackass $70,000 a year, fresh out of law school attorney to come down and tell me that, oh, I'm sorry, Eric, because of the ongoing litigation, we suggested to Turner Corporate Legal that you offer an apology because we felt that what you said could be disparaging, perhaps even there could be litigation associated with those comments. Fuck you. It's a wrestling business. Fucking attorney. Shakespeare was right. So let's keep it going here because I know I'm going to get you fired up here with this next bit. Uh, after you apologize, uh, the hits keep on coming. 
I can't believe this is a real thing. Oh God. I got to prepare. No, cause I don't want to get angry. I don't want to get angry. It's what time is it? It's seven 30 in the morning for me. And here I go I'm gonna start my day off. Well, fucking fired up. Damn. Vince McMahon ran a major ad, uh, in, in the newspaper, in the times where it says attention, TBS stockholders with a drawing of Turner and underneath copy that read quote, does Ted Turner have a personal vendetta against the world wrestling federation and the bottom headline big and bold says time Warner beware. So Vince is actively purchasing ads in major newspaper publications in the New York market where people who are heavily invested in the stock market are going to see this and it's going to get some attention. And then as if that's not enough, he sends a letter via FedEx to Ted talking about what you sort of insinuated earlier, the, um, the practice of self mutilation. And he's saying that I can only assume since the last two weeks of nitro have featured the practice of self mutilation parentheses, slicing oneself with a razor blade in parentheses is not only condoned, but encouraged. As you know, Hulk Hogan has been bleeding all over the place the last two weeks. And there have been numerous references on your wrestling programming that this weekend's double cage match will be so violent that one opponent will be quote bleeding to the point of no recognition end quote. This encouraged practice of self-mutilation is disgusting, violent, potentially infectious, and completely contradictory in every way to your testimony before Congress in June of 1993 and contrary to your 1995 participation of Voices Against Violence. Notwithstanding numerous unprecedented predatory practices against the World Wrestling Federation, if you continue to promote self-mutilation, I hope your stockholders hold you accountable for this unethically guttural, potentially unhealthy practice. Boy, Vince McMahon is selling like a bitch, as you would say, is he not? He is, but I'll tell you what, you know, and I, and I hear that and my first reaction, you know, my, my visceral reaction is to get angry and, you know, scream hypocrisy and all that. But this is why Vince McMahon won the war. Vince fights. Vince will do Regardless of whether it's true, untrue, fair, unfair, hypocritical, not hypocritical, it doesn't fucking matter. He's going to go for the juggler. He's going to figure out where the weak point is. He's going to know where he can do the most damage. And he is going to – he's not going to hold back. You know, that was the difference between Turner Broadcasting – and that's a perfect – you know, this this portion of the show is a really perfect example of why – one of the reasons why Vince McMahon is who Vince McMahon is to this day. He was not going to stop at anything. How ironic is it that me making a joke the week before about the, in, in making literally a joke about, Oh my God, it must be the WWE desperate people do desperate things. Come on. Did anybody fucking take that seriously? No. I mean, come on. But what did Turner legal do? They overreacted. You know, I jokingly talked about Vince McMahon selling like a bitch when he brought up the Nacho Man and you know, Billionaire Ted and all that kind of stuff. And it was true. He was selling. But who was really selling here? Turner Broadcast, Turner Legal sold their asses out by making me complain. And a week later, this comes. Oh, by the way, here's a guy who's funding ECW, where they consistently 
set each other on fire, gig each other with fucking can openers, bust each other open with meat graters, and do the most disgusting, vile shit you've ever seen on a wrestling show. Oh, and I'm funding that. There you go. Let's talk about hypocrisy. But it worked for him. He made it work for him. Turner folded their cards. Turner should have won the lawsuit. The, 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 the big lawsuit we had with the NWO and all that, that should have never gone down the way it went down. Turner Legal folded. They, they looked at it from a risk management point of view, and they folded because they weren't committed to the brand. Scott Hall, and I know I'm going way the fuck off track here, but going back to why I feel they should, Turner Legal should have won, you know, ultimately the, the trademark infringement case with, with Scott and Kevin. If go back, you know, and this is something, and the Turner lawyers were so fucking lazy and, and just didn't want to do the work. You could have easily have gone back and found footage of Scott Hall coming out with his hair slicked back in a toothpick and flicking it to the crowd when he was in WCW to establish that that wasn't a characteristic because that was a big part of that case hinged on Scott Hall's um, character and the way he was presented in WCW and the toothpick and the hair. Like shit he was doing in, in, as the Diamond Stud with Diamond Dallas Page in WCW. And all some attorney would have had to do is hire a, a fucking intern to go through all this footage and say, hey, look, here's 10,000 hours of footage. Here, go back to 1992 to 1994. Look for anything that you've, you see with Scott Hall wearing it w with a toothpick. And there would have been volumes of that footage that could have – could have helped support our case, but they didn't do that. They made up their minds early on that they were going to fold. And that's why tactics like Vince McMahon took here were so effective because he wasn't going after me because that wouldn't have served him. He didn't want to acknowledge that Eric Bischoff was kicking his ass in the ratings. He wanted to make it look like Ted Turner was actually sitting down with the creative team and coming up with these ideas. Nothing could have been, by the way, farther from the truth, but the truth didn't matter here. It was the image. It was the, it was the frame, the framing of the Monday Night Wars that, that Vince was most interested in creating. But now he's going after shareholders. Why would he go after shareholders? Do shareholders really give a fuck? Do, first of all, most shareholders don't even know they own stock in Turner Broadcasting. It's part of their 401ks. You know what I mean? That's generally the case. But he was going after shareholders. Why? Because he knew that Time Warner would be super sensitive to that. And Time Warner was not invested in the wrestling business. Time Warner didn't want to have anything to do with this kind of crud. So the, the, the more gratuitous that letter was and, 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 and caustic, the more effective it would be with the people who mattered. And at this point, it was Gerald Levin and Steve Case. Well, at this point, it was Gerald Levin and, and Time Warner. And it was smart. It was brilliant. I, you know, I've got to tell you, know, I like Vince McMahon. I don't know him real personally. I don't want to suggest that I do. Um, but having worked with him for four or five years and, and gotten to know him from a different perspective, I have the ultimate respect for Vince McMahon. He deserved to win that battle. He deserved to come out on top. And one of the reasons he did is because he was willing to fight the way he fought. Dirty as it was, hypocritical as it was, all of that is true. Didn't matter. He won. 
And for that, I have nothing but respect for him. But here's a perfect example. This one week in time that you just referenced, Turner Legal making me apologize for a joke and then having Vince McMahon taking out a, a, an ad in the New York Times and, 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 and attacking Ted Turner and his motives and, and all that, I think it's just it's, – that's typical. To me, that typifies why WC – one of the reasons why WCW lost the way they did. Let's talk about a meeting you held, um, with all the wrestlers prior to the universal tapings on February 7th, uh, you got all the boys together and told them for the first time, WCW is kicking the WWF's ass and you turned to profit for WCW for the first time, even though it was small, it was not a loss. And it's the first profit in company history. Here's something we haven't talked about much. This is written in the observer directly here. Quote, he talked about moving the company headquarters from Atlanta to Orlando, hinting it would be done six to eight months down the line. But when the wrestlers asked, he said not to start looking for new homes there yet for the guys who still live in Atlanta. He said the company would shut down for five weeks if they make the move and the WCW Saturday night would eventually be taped in Orlando at Disney or Universal instead of center stage in Atlanta. He also said they were working on getting medical insurance. Most, but not all the contract wrestlers and some of the wrestlers who were there being considered being put under contract were all drug tested. Forget the drug testing. We've covered that enough. How serious was the discussion to move WCW's headquarters to Orlando and why didn't it happen? I was, I was committed to it. I really wanted it to happen. Um, there was no real reason for us to be in Atlanta. You know, we weren't, you know, in terms of our, our relationship with Turner Broadcasting, we we didn't really work with anybody on a day-to-day basis in Turner Broadcasting. It wasn't ne- necessary for us to be in close proximity or be in, even in the same zip code. So I looked at it as, all right, we're a television company. Um, a, a large part of our talent roster lives in Florida anyway. So making a move would save us a lot of money, number one, in travel. Number two, Florida was a right-to-work state, which was important to me because I knew I could see what was going to happen as time went on. And eventually being in a right-to-work state would have certain advantages. There were tax advantages being in Florida that – we didn't enjoy being in Atlanta. We were doing so much production, either at Disney MGM studios or universal studios that access to the post-production facilities. And keep in mind our post-production facility and Turner broadcasting at the peak of our success, when we were kicking WWF's ass, when we were making, when we were rocking and rolling at our peak, whenever anybody wants to identify that for me, it was probably 97. Um, we had the same rinky-dink little post-production studio that we had when we were producing producing almost nothing. And we outgrew ourselves. So we had to make a move somewhere. Whether, you know, and ultimately it ended up being in that facocta dump of a cesspool over in Smyrna, Georgia. But my goal was to move us to Orlando. I was actually looking for homes there. That's how convinced you know, I was, my kids were, you know, they were, fortunately they were young enough then. So they were like, Oh, Florida, Disney, we universal. Great. You know, but, uh, yeah, Lori and I were deadly serious about it. There was a lot of resistance, unfortunately, from 
uh, not from talent, talent dug it, but from employees who were based in Atlanta. And I understand that. They had homes, they had families, they had kids that were in school. It would have literally been uprooting a lot of people who were anchored into the, you know, Atlanta suburban market. But that, you know, that happens. And I, I, I anticipated it. But I was deadly serious about it. Let's finally get to the pay-per-view. Uh, I feel like we've talked about everything, but super brawl. We're nearly two hours into this dude, but, um, the real reason we're here is super brawl. Um, it drew a sellout 7,200 fans, roughly 6,000 of those were actually paying customers, uh, a $90,000 gate, uh, more than a thousand people turned away at the door. So you're doing something right here. Lots of interest in this show. Uh, of course we're getting lots of matches that were. Uh, part of the pre-show instead of the actual pay-per-view we'll briefly run through those uh, the road warriors got a win over bunkhouse buck and dick slater in just a couple of minutes hugh morris pinned chris canyon which uh maybe one of canyon's first shots with you guys in about two and a half minutes bubba rogers and vk wall street would beat craig Pittman and joey mags and then duggan was scheduled against a surprise opponent and that turned out to be kevin sullivan after about 30 seconds, Loch Ness came out and destroyed Duggan, Pittman, Mags, Mark Starr, Ricky Santana, and Dave Sierra. Uh, not necessarily the best pre-show ever. Let's get to the actual show itself. Uh, and this first match is, is maybe not with, uh, your favorite group of guys, but it was pretty fun for what it was. The nasty boys get a win over the public enemy in a street fight that went seven minutes and 49 seconds. Uh, they pulled out all the stops, tables, chairs, garbage cans. I know that you don't really like the garbage matches. I get that. Meltzer would say all the blows were stiff and made great sound, but there was no selling at all and no psychology or story to the match, but the crowd was on its feet because the blows were so stiff. Two and three quarter stars is what the match got in the observer. And, uh, they do a, a little, uh, fake concession stand brawl again in this match. And Rocco comes off a low balcony with a senton onto a table. Of course, knobs moves. And when he goes through the table that allows knobs to pin him. I know that nobody really writes home about these matches today, but I think they're fun for what they are. what do you think watching it for the first time in a long time this week? Um, I felt, you know, I think Dave's, um, acknowledgement that it is what it is, but the crowd was on their feet was accurate. You know, that's what I thought when I went back and looked at the show again, I'm not going to talk about this type of match any more than I already have, but uh, I agree with everything Dave wrote. And I agree with your observation. They're fun. People said this before. I don't like them, but I'm not writing the show for me. You know, it's, it's, how does the crowd react? You know, the television audience, how do they react? The live audience in this case, how do they react? And the live audience liked it. Now, I, th- I think a lot of that has to do Conrad. And this is something I've learned, you know, obviously since this time, um, learned a lot in 20 some years, but I think a match like this, if you're going to have one, and this was not by design, it was coincidence, but I think it's obvious that if you're going to have a match like this, have it very early, right? You know, when the crowd is, they just got there, it's the first thing they see, they're primed, they're ready to have a good time. They just want to party, you know, and the fatigue hasn't set in yet. You know, they haven't seen a million other things at this point. So if you're going to have a match like this that doesn't have a story or there's not a lot of selling and it's just a brawl, damn, have it in the beginning of the show. 
don't put it in the middle. God help, don't put it at the end. You know, and I think that that's probably why the crowd reacted to it as strongly as they did is because it was right in the beginning of the show. I think the same match in the middle of the show or towards the end of the show would have probably gotten a much different reaction. Let's talk about Johnny B bad retaining the WCW title and winning $6.6 million from diamond Dallas page. It gets three and a quarter stars. And of course the 6 million here is money that DDP stole from Kimberly, at least in storyline. And that's part of the feud here. I got to tell you, um, I don't know why, but it is immediate channel changing material for me. When I see Johnny be bad in this era, this is before DDP really became the DDP that we knew and love in 97 and 98, not my favorite match, but Meltzer didn't hate it. Three and a quarter stars. what did you think? You watched it this time for the first time in a long time. I hated it. I, I'm with you on this. Um, look, Johnny, Johnny worked hard. It has nothing to do with Johnny or even DDP. Well, yeah, it does when it comes to DDP, but Johnny, Johnny was doing what he was asked to do. And he was doing it to the absolute best of his ability. It's no fault of Johnny that this, this character was as lame as it was outdated as it was hokey as it was. That wasn't Johnny's fault. It was the character that was assigned to him and he was doing what he had to do. Um, but it was so out of place and outdated it's just, it's hard to watch. I agree with you. Um, DDP, probably because I know him and love him. Um, it's like, you know, looking at your kids doing really stupid shit, even though you love them, it's still stupid shit. You still got to call it. <laughs> and, and I look at DDP here and I'm so grateful that we transitioned his character oh. I'm grateful for him. I'm grateful for me. I'm grateful, you know, to the eyes and the memories and, and the psyches of fans who had to watch, sit through it and watch that goofy ass fucking overly gimmick character of his before we turn him into, you know, the real people's champion. It's horrible. His walkout made me, I got to talk to DDP in a little while. We've been playing phone tag for a couple of days. I got to call him and I'm just going to remind him of how fucking horrible his gimmick was before we stripped him of all his shit. He came out with a bouquet of roses. He had a rose stuck in his hair. He looked like some kind of Spanish flamenco dancer or some shit. It was just pink tights and this bushy. He had hair like Brian Pillman. And it was just, yeah, God, God. Just like, God almighty. That was, his fucking entrance music. He had like a Honda 150 revving up in the background. What the fuck is that? Where did that come from? Who in their right mind thought that that was really a cool entrance? I just, it was horrible. Horrible. It was horrible. And what's interesting to me is Merrill's going to leave the company not too terribly long after this and wind up with the competition. Uh, He shows up uh, around WrestleMania time, but he's getting a win here on TV. I'm sure you guys just needed to blow off the feud, but. Was there any thought to not having Johnny be bad, get a win since he's leaving? No, I never, look, I'm not saying I never considered that type of thing, but it's just that old school tradition. Well, if you're leaving, you're doing the job, bro. You know, I, I, I didn't believe in sacrificing the story for the moment. You know, if the moment required, somebody's going to be leaving, you know, new piece of business, didn't anticipate it. You know, why fuck up the story? 
You know, it wasn't like, oh, if he leaves with the win, he's going to be more valuable. He's going to go over to the WWF and they're going to make him a star because he got a win over DDP. Fucking stupid is that? That's stupid. Um, so, no, it didn't matter. And I didn't have a bad, you know, it wasn't like Johnny and I were like, you know, at odds and we didn't have this like toxic relationship. And, you know, I was going to show him. There was none of that. It was it was amicable, you know, as, as amicable, I guess, as something like this could be. I was disappointed. I thought he was making a mistake. I told him so. I told him, you know, he was buying a line of bullshit. Vince McMahon convinced him he was going to turn him in, you know, to a huge star. He turned his wife into a huge star. He didn't do shit for Mark Merrill. But, you know, it is what it is. But, it, no, the, the, the idea of, you know, changing the finish and changing the storyline didn't occur to me. Next up, Sting and Lex Luger are working Harlem Heat. Sting and Lex are going to get the win, and they're going to retain their tag titles. In just under 12 minutes, the winner of the match here is supposed to face the Road Warriors later in the show. Uh, not a great match. Uh, the finish saw Stevie Ray have Lex Luger in a backbreaker over the shoulder. When the Road Warriors do a run-in, an animal hit Stevie Ray with a metal object, which allowed Luger to score the pin. Star and a half. Lots of star power here. Well, three out of four ain't bad, but the match, eh, not that good for me. What'd you think? Same as the match was, let, let me back up for characterize the match. What, what I thought was really interesting looking back at this. Now this is pre NWO, right? Yeah. This is in February. NWOs in July, really NWO the way I see it in my head really didn't start evolving until September, October. So notice Sting here. He's already kind of losing the surfer Sting look. Yep. He quit dyeing his hair. He was already getting kind of tired of that character and and starting to make subtle and not so subtle changes in the way that he presented it. So I thought that was an interesting just tidbit observation, I guess. Um, no, no real meaning behind it other than it was really interesting to see that that evolution of Sting started actually before the NWO. Number one, number two, I think the match was hideously boring and, and profoundly shitty. Can't think of a better way. Just the, the finish was horrible. I don't know whoever came up with that finish, but it was the lamest, you know, you can take We've talked about this before. You can take a lame match or a match that would otherwise be, you know, according to the Dave Meltzer standard, maybe a two-star match or whatever, just an average match. And you could make that a standout match on the card if you come up with a great finish. This finish was the exact opposite of that. They took kind of an average lame match and they made it worse with a finish that was so juvenile and ineffective that it just ugh, it just created a big hole right in the middle of the card where this match was. All right, well, let's keep it moving here. Let's get to the next match, which I'm sure you liked a lot more. Conan retains his U.S. title, pinning the one-man gang with a somersault body block off the ropes. Meltzer would say, horrible, as in worst match of the year candidate. Not a good way to get Conan over. Boy, that is an understatement. It's not as if they weren't warned in advance. Negative two stars. What do you think? This, this this particular episode of 83 Weeks is making me nervous because I'm finding myself agreeing with Dave Meltzer more than I thought I ever would in my life. 
but there's no denying it. You know, it was horrible. It was it was bad booking. Whoever booked it, I was assuming it's Kevin Sullivan at the time, um, along with, you know, a group of his staff, you know, Terry Taylor, Mike Graham, all the other geniuses who professed to know everything there was to know about the wrestling business, you know, put this thing together. And, you know, I don't know how you look at Conan, if you've ever seen him before. And, and the, you know, Conan was much younger at this point, and I don't know if he was in his prime or not, but he was certainly closer to it than he than he is today. Um, Conan was younger, um, but boy, you're talking about you, you're making you know, a one man gang in Conan. I mean, yeah, how would you possibly put that down on paper and think it was going to turn out anything but hideous? And it was hideous. By the way, Conan's gimmick was pretty hideous. I thought even more interesting was the graphic they used depicting Conan right before the match where he looked like he was 12. I don't know where they got that graphic from. But um, I didn't even recognize Conan. When I first saw the graphic as I was watching the the, the, the pay-per-view to review it for the show, I, that graphic popped up. I went, what the hell is that? Oh, it's Conan when he was 13. <laughs> but – you know, his gimmick in the ring, he was like still like half Max Moon or some shit. You know, I don't know what he was. It was just, it was god awful from the get go. Next up is the thing everyone remembers most from this show. And we've covered it on our Brian Pillman episode, but we'll touch on it here. Kevin Sullivan beat Brian Pillman in 59 seconds of a respect match. Meltzer would describe it as strange and gave it a dud rating. Of course. This is in the middle of this loose cannon persona, the work shoot and everything's blended up and nobody knows what's real and what's Memorex. Um, the nitro prior to the clash in Vegas, Pillman disappeared and several in WCW were nervous that he was going to show up at the live raw show in Stockton, California, which was only about an hour flight away the next week. On Nitro, we saw Pillman in a tag match with Arn Anderson and Kevin Sullivan and Hugh Morris. It's a stinker of a match, but um, a lot of people believe that there may have been a few seconds of uh, shooting in the match. Pillman stormed out of Lakeland after a backstage argument with Kevin Sullivan and says he's through with the company, but then shows up late the next day for the universal studio tapings. And when you hold the meeting with all the boys that we addressed earlier, Pillman's mouthing off, you guys have some back and forth and you say he's lucky to even be employed. And then you hint on television as a commentator, he won't be employed for long. Pillman's kept apart from all the other wrestlers and it's perceived to be because he has heat. And the television angle, a lot of people believe, um, okay, maybe this is supposed to be booked this way. It's a Japanese style angle. And part of that is because Sullivan's doing an interview where he breaks a pencil signifying that he's not going to be, you know, uh, working in this and cause he's the booker, blah, blah, blah. Then we had the whole situation with the jacket and Bobby Heenan and what the fuck are you doing at the clash? And now here is the pay-per-view and it's an, I quit version of a strap match. That's sort of the idea. And Pillman comes to the ring with the strap that he had supposedly stolen earlier that day. And he whipped Sullivan a few times. 
punches him, kicks him, and Pillman takes a totally stunned ref and then grabs the mic and says very sarcastically, I respect you, Booker man. And then walks out and flips off the crowd on the way back. And at that point, Meltzer would say there was what he would describe as genuine panic backstage. So Jimmy Hart comes out and pulls in Arn Anderson, who's dressed in shorts and tennis shoes. And they have a very bad representation of a match with a strange finish here, just to put something out there. And Pillman sarcastically in front of all the boys tells you something like, sorry about your 12 minute strap match. And then leaves the building with Chris Benoit, who we know had a situation brewing with Kevin Sullivan. He flies home before nitro the next night in Tampa. And there's no official word as to whether or not he's been fired, but you make mention on commentary that he's history here. And there's only three horsemen. Nobody knows what the fuck is going on. We've touched on this before in our Brian Pillman episode, briefly carry us through here. What the thinking is, because as far as I know, the only guy in the back who was being loud and proud based on what we read is disco inferno who says they're working the boys. But Meltzer says, if this is a work, it's the most elaborate work. In recent memory. It was a work. Um, It's interesting that people are still talking about it to this day. And it's been the subject of books and endless commentary and that type of thing. Um, All the back and forth between Brian and I was a work. We we knew what we were doing. um, And to a certain degree set it up. Uh, didn't rehearse it or that type of thing, but I knew, you know, Brian was going to mouth off in, in the meeting and he knew that I was going to respond appropriately. Um, so that part of it was, you know, that was a work. I think a lot, it was, it was all a work. Now what, and we'll never know, you know, we'll never know what Brian's real intentions were. I know what Brian and I talked about it. And again, I don't want to revisit the Brian Pillman episode. I encourage people to go back and listen to it, but it, it was a work. And, you know, here's, I, I'm hesitating because I don't want to make it sound like I'm making an excuse. I accept a hundred percent responsibility for everything that happened. And at the time I thought I was doing something that was productive and meaningful. That being said, you know, one of the things I've learned over the course of the 20 years that followed that, you know, was that when you're telling a wrestling story, and I think this is the fatal flaw in this particular story, not, not that there weren't more than one, but this was the biggest one is this, this story was told with way too much nuance. You know, I firmly believe that if you're going to paint a picture, if you're going to tell a story in wrestling, use a, don't use a, a little paintbrush to do it like a little fine art paintbrush, use a roller like you would paint your walls with in your house. A big, the 18-inch or 24-inch wide roller. Paint your picture in big, broad strokes. Paint your picture in bright, fluorescent colors. Stay away from the shades of gray and the nuance, you know, the breaking of the pencil. Those are all things. And this is, I think, a mistake that's indicative to many mistakes that were made in wrestling inside of the ring in WCW for so long. Because wrestlers 
when they start laying out a match or a storyline, and I'll, I'll try not to get too far off the beaten path here, but you know, oftentimes because they're so familiar and they're so fluent in the storytelling in the ring that they often rely on subtleties because the broad strokes to, 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 I think many talent, at least it used to be this way to many talent, were just too obvious. And they wanted the nuance of a finish or the new, the, the fine details sometimes of certain things that happened very quickly. And the audience never got it. You know, a finish needs to be a big, loud, colorful, emotional moment. Even a false finish should be set up in such a way that it's bright and it's clear and it's generating emotion and it's designed to get a reaction. It shouldn't happen so fast and so subtly that it just zips by and the audience doesn't even have a chance to react to it. And I think in this case, you know, Kevin was so, Sullivan was so, and, and, and Brian, they were so deep into the story that they relied so much on the nuance of it that it, it was more than anything confusing to the audience who wasn't as intimate with the story as, as the two guys that were writing it and executing it. That's my takeaway from this. You know, I think there were certain aspects of it that were monumental and that were kind of industry changing, you know, breaking the fourth wall, you know, wrecking, you know, Brian recognizing Kevin as the booker and, and, you know, establishing that relationship as a centerpiece to the story was something that never had really been done before. And it was kind of, you know, it was, it was breaking new ground. And for that, I liked it, but so much of the subtlety that helped support the story and the nuance of it just went over, but everybody's head and confused everybody. Um, but it's 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 a fascinating moment, you know. As we look back, it's a fascinating transition in the way stories were told in wrestling. It was a fascinating attempt at our part on our part of bringing more reality-based storytelling, where the truth behind the scenes meets the fiction in the ring, and blending and merging those two things together to create something that you know was more real and believable for the audience. Uh, in many ways, it was really, really fascinating, but in more ways, it was really, really confusing to the audience who just, number one, wasn't used to that. And number two, it wasn't executed as well as it probably would be today. Next up, we've got Sting and Lex Luger going to a double countout on pay-per-view here with the Road Warriors to retain the WCW tag titles. Um, Meltzer would say Luger stalled forever in getting in the ring, acting like he didn't want to be in the match. Oh man, he's really critical of the Warriors here. The Warriors and the guys of wanting the titles wrestled scientifically, which needless to say is not their forte. Actually, I can't figure out exactly what is their forte. Since they're legends of the 80s, the crowd is really into them when they come out, but their matches stink. All kinds of missed moves capped off with a horrible finish, negative one star. Yeah, what's interesting about this to me, and I watched this for the first time in a long time, is this pairing of Sting and Luger is happening where Sting is a babyface and Lex is a heel. So when they're walking to the ring at times, Sting is running around high-fiving the fans, and whenever Sting is looking, Lex is doing the same. But when Sting is no longer looking at Lex, Lex is disgusted by the fans and no longer giving high-fives, which is sort of fun for what it is. But this match, whew, not very good. What would you think? Well, me and my buddy Dave Meltzer agree once again. 
you know, bad chemistry, you know, bad matchup, bad booking. Um, you know, the idea of, you know, Lex being a heel and Sting being a babyface, it's, it's cute for about 15 seconds and then it becomes kind of insulting and stupid. Uh, in my opinion, my taste, you know, maybe a 12 year old kid would have dug it, you know, but the, you know, 40 year old me was looking at that going, eh, and the 64 year old me is looking at that going, oh my God, how did I let that happen? It was what it was, you know, I, but I, I, I can't. I can't defend it, certainly. I can't suggest that, no, it was really better. It really was a three-star match. Dave is really wrong. I mean, it was what it was. It was it was a bad matchup. It was bad booking. That's what happens when you put together two teams like that. You know, Sting and Lex were not scientific wrestlers either, by the way. You know, it takes two to tango. You know, as, as rough and unscientific as the Road Warriors were, and they were. You know, when they were coming up in the AWA, when they first, you know, made it to to the big time, so to speak, they would just beat the dog shit out of people. They were brutal. They were big, physical powerhouses. That was their gimmick. They they, <laughs> they didn't come out doing, you know, Luthes Dan Gable shit. <laughs> they weren't like Billy Robinson. It, it, you know? it is interesting to me, though, that. Dave Meltzer had such a hard on for the Road Warriors. I thought it was a great match. I thought it was a great story. It was a great use of Elizabeth. It was um, there's enough. You know, like any. This is this is just me again. My taste. When you have a wrestling storyline that exploits reality, just in, in, enough that a storyline is plausible, it could be true you're on the right track, you know, taking advantage of the relationship between Elizabeth and Randy, the way we did in this particular story was certainly plausible. It could have been true, even though we all know it wasn't, it could have been, it was believable enough. And that's one of the reasons it made it work. There were so many reasons why this worked, but it, it really was a great representation by everybody involved. And I was proud to go back and watch that one made everybody look good. What was the relationship like here between Randy and Liz at this point? They're on good terms. It was so bizarre, not bizarre. It was so unusual. Bizarre suggests that it was odd in a a negative way. It was very, very unusual. And I was a little concerned at the very beginning, you know, when I was like, Hey, you know, we want to bring Elizabeth in. And it's like, Oh my God. So all I need is more fucking Peyton place backstage drama to deal with. Cause at that point I already had enough. Um, but Randy, Randy was very, very protective of Elizabeth, but like a big brother, not like jilted lover, <laughs> former husband. You know, it was he he kept an eye on her, but in 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 a positive way. You know, as a, almost a mentor. He, you know, she got involved in things and storylines and, you know, different things that, you know, probably didn't really sit all that well with Randy from a creative point of view. But Randy was smart enough um, or mature enough, I guess, at that point to, you know, he'd separate himself from it. He'd give you he'd give me his opinion. He, I'm sure he gave her uh, his opinion uh, privately. But once, you know, we went in a direction or decided to go in a direction, then that was it. We moved on. So short answer is he was very protective of her, but in a very positive way, you know, like, like a big brother, not like a former lover or husband. All right, Eric, we're almost there. Let's get to our main event, Hulk Hogan and the giant in a cage match. 
Uh, Meltzer would say kind of a boring match. It does go 15 minutes, which might be too long for these guys. Giant used the choke slam, but Hogan pops up. Hogan kept running giant into the cage and actually bladed him, except he somehow didn't get any blood. So they called it as if the giant was bleeding, but if he was, nobody could see it. Hogan uses three leg drops, but the giant pops up and the two climb to the top rope and trade chops until the giant does the nasty plunge into the ring. And then Hogan climbs over for the win. And after the match, Kevin Sullivan hits Hogan with a chair, but he pops up, gets the chair and chases Sullivan into the ring. And at this point, Sullivan and the giant are already there and out come Ming barbarian, Hugh Morris, Zodiac, one man gang shark and Jimmy Hart to make it nine on one. Uh, so naturally Hogan runs them all out until the Loch Ness monster shows up, but they hold him back from getting into the cage. Jesus fucking Christ. What were you thinking with this, Eric? Well, number one, <clears throat> I didn't book it. I just allowed it to happen. <laughs> I allowed it to happen. I'm not shirking the responsibility. I am taking the responsibility that I had in this abortion, taking a full frontal shot to the balls. All right. I'll take it. That being said, when it comes to what I was thinking, I wasn't thinking because I wasn't involved in it. It was just like, okay, that's what you guys want to do. You know, again, I was, I was, this sounds like an excuse. And I, I, I admit it sounds like an excuse and I can't figure out a way to make it not sound like an excuse, but I had zero confidence in my own ability as a booker, uh, as a writer. Um, I tried to stay as far away from it at this point as I possibly could. And I relied on the people, the best people I could find that I had access to that had experience in this role. And there were oftentimes when I saw things that I went, eh, but I didn't feel strongly enough about my opinion or I had confidence enough in my opinion, I should say, to exercise any voice in it. So here we go. This is it. You know, I look at it, I cringe. I, I know what it was. It was, you know, let's go back to 1988. Let's go to that toolbox and grab that wrench and tell that story. Uh, and it was horrible and it just made no sense. It was just horrible. <laughs> it, it was what it was. Well, it's clearly designed to set up uncensored, which is going to be that triple cage doomsday cage monstrosity where it's, uh, Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage versus the world. Um, overall, what do you think of this pay-per-view? You haven't seen this in a long time. You know, we're 23 years removed from it now, I think. Uh, what do you think? You know, I enjoyed watching it back to, to prep for this episode. Um, mostly I enjoyed it and appreciated it for what it represented in terms of the transition that was taking place at that time in storytelling, not only in WCW, but would, it would be the, the kind of uh, the precursor to what became a major change in the way wrestling was being presented during this period of time. And this was like, you started to see early indications of it here, just a little bit of it. And, you know, like with the sting, you know, re retooling of, of sting's character is one example. Um, the, the reality within the, the Liz Randy storyline and, and the positive effect that it had on that particular match that took place before this. So there were, when I look at it, when you ask me what I think about it, I, I don't look at it as, you know, qualifying 
or, or rating the pay-per-view in terms of a one to 10, but I do look at it in terms of, wow, this is an important piece of history because so many important things were just beginning to evolve. You know, the Brian Pillman, um, Sullivan stories is, you know, flawed as that story was in many respects. It's still, it represented a really major transition in our industry in the way stories were being told. So I, I'm, I'm proud of it in that sense. I'm, I enjoyed watching it because of the context that I now watch it with in, in terms of the overall quality of it, you know, phew, I don't know how we survived, <laughs> you know, overall. Uh, um, but it, it, it was what it was. The times were different then than they are now. And we all know more now than we did then, but it really is an interesting look back at, I think a pivotal point in our history. What's interesting too, is the next night on nitro, Arn Anderson is going to get a pinfall win over Hulk Hogan, which I think most people would think that won't ever happen, but it did. And the week prior to this pay-per-view, so in consecutive nitros, Ric Flair pinned Hulk Hogan. So Hulk Hogan had two pinfall losses on nitro back to back one week to Flair, the next week to Arn Anderson. A lot of people can be sort of, uh, I don't know, suspect at best of Hulk Hogan and his motives. What was the thinking in having Hulk Hogan do a couple of jobs here on television back to back? Oh, it was probably more than anything, a reaction to, you know, the kind of negative narrative, you know, and, and that was always the narrative. Hulk Hogan doesn't want to do a job for anybody. Hulk Hogan wants two jobs. Well, it's not true. Um, and we could spend an entire show talking about all the jobs that he did. Um, for people throughout his career that people seem to have forgotten about. And these are a couple of them that you just mentioned. Um, but I, I don't think it served any real purpose other than to possibly um, rebalance the imbalanced perception of Hulk Hogan refusing to do jobs for people. Let's briefly talk about um, something that really stuck out to me like a sore thumb when I did my research here. Lots of wrestlers showed up at this show. Most of them from the Tampa area, guys like Mike Graham, who had recently, well, the year prior been fired, Brian Blair, Bushwhackers, Warlord, Johnny Ace, et cetera, et cetera. But the two names that stuck out the most to me when I did my research that they were there and I couldn't wait to ask you about were Pat Patterson and his partner, Louis Dondero. They were at this pay-per-view. Did you, did you see Pat at the show? Did you know he was there at the time or was he just get a, to get a comp ticket and sit in the crowd or did you actually have interaction with Pat at this show? No, I didn't. I wish I would have. I didn't really know. I mean, I knew the name Pat Patterson, obviously, you know, a former wrestler. I, I knew of him. I remember Ray Stevens and, uh, talking about Pat quite a bit when I used to hang out with Ray Stevens back in the AWA. So I obviously knew who Pat Patterson was, but I didn't really understand at this period of time, I didn't really understand the significance of Pat's role within WWE. Um, I just didn't. And I wish I would have <laughs> because Pat said this before, you know, all the, you know, the, the innuendo and the rumors and the suggestions, even by Vince McMahon that I, you know, going back to some of the, you know, uh, billionaire Ted skits and, you know, talking about how I really wanted Shawn Michaels, nothing was further from the truth. I not only didn't want Shawn Michaels or had no interest in Shawn Michaels, I was probably more than anything adamant about not bringing him in 
based on his reputation and the issues that I already had to deal with in WCW. But the, the one guy who I really wished I, I didn't never went after the Undertaker, never talked to Shawn Michaels, never talked to I didn't even talk to Mabel. <laughs> but um, Pat is a guy that I wish I would have gotten to know. And I wish I would have been able, and I don't think I could have, because Pat was so loyal to Vince, and still is to this day, and justifiably so. But if I would have thought I had a crack, had I known about Pat and what he could actually contribute to the product, man, I'd have been following him and Louie around like a fucking puppy until they finally would sit down and talk to me and at least give me a chance to talk to Pat about coming in. But the truth is I didn't understand Pat's role and I didn't have any interaction with him. In fact, I'm not even sure I knew he was there. Well, so there you go. That's going to wrap up super brawl six. What's coming up next week. Well, we're going to take what came in second place in our super brawl poll. It'll be super brawl three from February 21st, 1993. And this is an interesting card. We've got the Hollywood blondes, Brian Pillman and Steve Austin taking on Eric Watts and Marcus Bagwell. Two Cold Scorpio working with Chris Benoit, Davey Boy Smith working with Bill Irwin, Cactus Jack taking on Paul Orndorff, the Rock and Roll Express in there with the Heavenly Bodies, which at the time was Tom Pritchard and Stan Lane, and of course, Jim Cornette on the outside. We've also got Dustin Rhodes working with Max Payne for the U.S. Heavyweight Championship. Barry Windham is wrestling the Great Muda for the NWA World Title. And in a White Castle of Fear strap match, it's Big Van Vader and Sting what a show this was. I can't wait for us to get back and uh, take a look at a super brawl from February 21st, 1993. What stands out the most to you when I run through that card? The diversity of it. I mean, that feels like a super card in, in a way to me because there's so much going on there. And I, obviously the, you know, the white castle of fear was the first thing that just jumped out at me because I remember that so much and remember all the buildup to it and you know the work that Sharon Sadella put into it and all that so that that's what I'm looking forward to that one can't wait to uh cover Super Brawl 3 with you next week uh, right here on 83 weeks John brings his skewed sense of humor Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.